You're listening to Alternative Thinking, Both Sides of the Coin, a production of the Canadian Association of Alternative Strategies and Assets, where we explore today's markets and alternative investments from two distinct perspectives. Today, we're speaking with two experts in offshore funds, one focused on the legal side and origination of these vehicles, and the other involved in ongoing governance of, of offshore structure. Both have a great deal of experience in their respective fields and share details of all areas of offshore investments and even personal and corporate taxation, an area quite orthogonal to many listeners who might be in the typical income, interest, dividend, and capital gains taxation regimes. Of course, these funds are designed to be tax neutral and not tax dodging, so governance and prudent planning is a must to ensure that the aims of investors and other stakeholders are met. James Brown is the president and co-founder of CASA. All opinions expressed during the show by James and our show guests remain their own and should be used for informational and educational purposes only. Find out more about CASA at casa.ca. Welcome. Today is Thursday, April 30th, and I'm James Brown with CASA, and this is Alternative Thinking. Today we have Jennifer Collins from Carn Group calling in from the Cayman Islands and Louis Chong from Harneys calling from uh, Vancouver, uh, British Columbia, Canada. Uh, we'll start with self-introductions. I'll uh, start with you, uh, Jennifer, please. Sure. Thanks, James. So I'm Canadian as well, actually, just based in the Cayman Islands for the last 20 years. I started my career in nice. public practice. So I'm a Canadian, originally a CA, but now a Canadian CPA, and I'm also an American CPA. I've been based in Cayman for the last 20 years in the financial services industry. The bulk of my career in the early days was in fund administration, and then for the last nine years. I've been working as an independent fund director. So I work with Karn Group and Karn is a global governance shop. We have 35 plus directors sitting on boards in various jurisdictions, Mm -hmm. as well as over 200 people, the bulk of them supporting kind of risk management and um, fund management in Europe. We have presence in eight jurisdictions and in the Cayman Islands, there are 12 of us, nine of us acting as independent directors. What's that like? Like, what's what would be the major difference or the major the reason that you moved from fundamental uh, back office to the director, which sounds a bit more exciting? Uh, I dare say, sexy that you're going to be uh, looking <laughs> at funds and and I guess it's reviewing a lot of documents. But um, uh, what's the difference between maybe the two, between the two jobs? You know, when you make a major career shift, you certainly hope that your previous career experience is going to translate to the new career you've chosen. And, um, you know, I wondered about that when I made the move, um, but it, it really translated well in terms of the types of things I'd been doing in, in fund administration. I always say I just was reviewing al- almost all the same documents, but just on the other foot. So whereas administrator, I was making sure as much responsibility was, was the directors in those documents, then as a director, <laughs> you know, I'm looking at those documents and making sure that we are accurately reflecting who's delegated out to do those duties and who's taking the responsibilities and making sure that, you know, the whole process is is properly delegated and documented. So um, it's interesting. It's all the interesting parts of doing fund administration, um, being involved in the subscription, um, the NAV process, oversight of the investment manager and, and but yet not so much of the day-to-day grind of downloading things from Bloomberg and uploading NAVs. Yeah. And do you have the end of the month, end of the month crunch where you have to get the nav out and strike the nav or, uh, or end of the, whatever the period is, uh, is how, how regimented is it? It's different on the directorship side because we typically do quarterly oversight. So each quarter 
there'll be a flurry of mm. board meetings where we're host, holding um, board meetings with the administrator and the investment manager, sometimes the auditor, depending on the time of year. So they tend to fall in clusters where, you know, once the quarter has ended, kind of check in with all the investment managers and have the board meetings to, to oversee the previous quarter. And then there's mm. other pockets of busyness around audit season when, you know, we're very much involved in reviewing the audited financials and meeting with the auditor and making sure that everything went smoothly and highlighting any risks that we need to be aware of. Well, I got a ton of questions here, but I, okay, well, I got a couple, maybe a couple more for now. Um, so these, these board meetings, are they typically online or do, do, do the fund managers fly out to see you? Do you go to London or New York and see them or how do you, uh, how do you manage that? And then, and then maybe how many regulators do you deal with? Is it just the Cayman regulators or is there all the other ones that you have to work with being, being situated in Cayman? So I'll start with your question in two parts. So starting with the first part in terms of the board meetings, it actually translated very well to COVID-19 and the uh, self-isolation that we're all doing in that being located in the Cayman Islands on a regular basis. I'm used to dealing with my clients remotely. So, you know, the quarterly meetings, Mm -hmm. usually three of the four meetings we do via phone. And so we have very established rapport and methodology for meeting on the phone and getting the reports in advance and and then being able to field the questions with the various parties on the phone. So that that really has translated to work from home seamlessly. There's really been no change. Kind of best governance practice is to have one in-person board meeting in every year. I would typically fly to the the clients because I like to do not just the in-person board meeting, but also meet other people within the investment managers and mm-hmm. to kind of kick the tires and see the operations in real life. Depending on the jurisdiction your client's in, you can't always have the meeting where the investment manager is because there may be regulatory reasons why you want to make sure you have it in another jurisdiction. But I do try to visit all my clients once a year. I don't think that's going to happen in 2020, especially since right now the mm-hmm. commercial flights are blocked from, to and from the Cayman Islands. But oh, that, really? being yeah. a, that being an outlier, that's kind of the, the general practice. So, And that face-to-face interaction is really important for intangible reasons. Just deepens your relationship, gets you better rapport. When you're meeting with institutional investors, it's very evident when you've been to the operations, you know the investment manager, you know what their office looks like. It's just It just deepens that relationship. And then when you're in situations like we are right now, where funds are perhaps not necessarily all in crisis, but where they're definitely stretched and there's mm-hmm. lots going on, you can build on those deep relationships and good rapport. And it flows very naturally to stay in touch. And then, uh, yeah, let's see, was it just, it's just the Cayman Island with SEMA, Cayman Island Monetary Authority that you deal with? Or is it, you have to think of all the regulations for all the different fund, uh, like where the fund managers are? Yes. So my direct kind of line is into the Cayman Islands Monetary Authority, because for the most part, I sit on Cayman Island vehicles. I do sit on a Delaware mm-hmm. REIT as well. But through the relationship of the investment managers, we are definitely in tune to either the SEC, CFTC, the NFA, the FCA in Europe, just depending where your investment manager is based, that you really have to stay on top of the regulation for the portfolio as well as the entity. And so we have a section of our agenda in each board meeting where we go over legal and regulatory issues. We usually update on the Cayman piece as a Cayman director, but Mm -hmm. the 
we also use that opportunity to make sure that we're aware of all the other regulators and if they've been in to visit and if they have anything that they're highlighting or isn't priority. Oh, great. Let's get to Lewis. Uh, Lewis made a bit of a move also uh, from a far off land uh, to move to, uh, to Vancouver in, in Canada. So uh, maybe let's hear your story, Lewis. Thanks for having me on the podcast, James. Uh, I'm a partner at Harney's, an international law firm, and we advise on a variety of offshore jurisdictions. Uh, they're the Cayman Islands, the British Virgin Islands, Cyprus, Luxembourg, and Anguilla. Uh, we have a, 13 locations uh, around the world and about 625 staff globally. Uh, I personally advise on Cayman and BVI funds and corporate matters. And as you mentioned, James, I moved to mm-hmm. Vancouver for Harneys in 2014 with a view to building a, a Cayman and BVI practice focused on servicing Canadian and West Coast clients, pretty mm. much because no one was advising on Cayman and BVI law in this time zone or, or in this jurisdiction. Really? Huh. And yeah. So it was kind of a... A bit of blue sky thinking in terms of um, you know building a bit of business and and at the time I figured I had about two years of runway to get some traction out here before I'd get yanked back to the Cayman <laughs> Islands. But um, sounds like uh, it's thankfully working. Thankfully, I've been here for <laughs> yeah, I think so about six years now and and have managed to build a little practice so safe and sound here in in Vancouver. So you're the but you can probably tell I'm I'm not I'm not uh, Canadian originally. Um, so uh, started out in New Zealand as a corporate lawyer and, and then mm. made my way to the UK for uh, what New Zealanders call the, the big overseas experience to try <laughs> and see a bit of Europe for a few years before heading home. Yeah. But unfortunately, I, I, I haven't make it, made it home yet. So uh, still out here. I, I kind of practiced uh, private equity fund formation in London for uh, a mm. large European law firm and then a, a large US law firm for about five years and then uh jennifer i don't know if you're in the same position but it was like a a really cold wet london winter when i got caught up by a recruitment agent saying hey do you want a free trip to the caribbean to see if you'd like to work there and it kind of sealed the deal um in 2010 for me to to move to the caribbean yeah it was very much the same for me i think my arrival date on my immigration record is december 18th of 2000. So I was facing a minus yeah. 40 Celsius Canadian winter and uh, bailed on it entirely. Yeah, but then you didn't stay in Cayman, obviously, for uh, for that long. You, you ended up getting, uh, you didn't go to Toronto, which is bizarre. I mean, you went to Vancouver, which has uh, slightly better weather, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, that was a combination of business and personal mm-hmm. reasons, I'd say. Like, uh, from a business perspective, I feel like Toronto's in that eastern time zone, which is pretty much aligned with Cayman. So one, you know, there's plenty of people um, trying to build a business in in that particular time zone. And it's easy for folks to get there from from Cayman. Whereas on the West Coast, it was just a little bit, um, a little bit easier to to make some connections and, and, you know, sell something reasonably unique. Well, that's interesting. Yeah, so you're the kind of the onshore, offshore lawyer. I love it. Uh, probably the only one that I've ever yeah. seen that. that uh, and yeah, Cayman is really quite a destination. Um, and you're right, though. Like we go down there every year, and it's it's a full, quick four hour flight from Toronto. It's great. I'm not sure if we'll be able to go there this Christmas, but uh, 
Um, I, when I was in Hong Kong, I asked him, like, oh, so where do you do your offshore? Is it like in Singapore or something? And said, oh, no, we use Cayman. And they're like, I was like, what? It's like 12 hours difference. They go, oh, that's, that's fine, though. They, they just work at night and we, you know, we just wait for the files to come out in the morning and it's great. Um, so I was actually quite surprised that uh, Cayman was used half, yeah, halfway around I mean, the world, literally. No, a, a lot of a lot of Cayman firms have pretty large presences in Asia. I think I think our Hong Kong office could be the the second largest office we have. Mm. Um, so, yeah. So I mean that that's kind of been the strategy. Even though we advise on, you know, Cayman and BVI law, for example, we have offices in in London and in Hong Kong and in Shanghai and Singapore to try and service clients in in the same location. So, yeah, I was going to ask you about that. Like, you came in a BBI. What would you say are the major differences between those two jurisdictions? And then you mentioned Cyprus and Luxembourg. I guess those are EU. Uh, and then Anguilla, yeah. uh, an island I don't, you don't hear too much about. Um, maybe if you could talk about those kind of jurisdictions and yeah. differences. I think that's right. I mean, certainly for North American clients, the Cayman Islands and British Virgin Islands are, are, are what come up a lot. You know, the folks who are looking to do things in, in Europe will sometimes ask me for introductions to uh, colleagues in Luxembourg or Cyprus. Mm -hmm. But generally speaking, when you're talking about funds, it's, it's Cayman or BVI. Um, Cayman is definitely the, the leader in terms of offshore funds jurisdictions. By our estimates, Cayman has about 70% of the world's offshore funds. Wow. Um, uh, BVI, I think, sits in the second place with about... 12% of the world's offshore funds, but um, Cayman's done a phenomenal job of marketing itself as a jurisdiction and and just as, as essentially the go-to funds jurisdiction. I mean, in terms of what how they differ, I, from 10,000 feet, I think they, they serve the same purpose. They're kind of tax-neutral vehicles to allow you know, international investors to, to back a, a Canadian or US manager strategy without necessarily becoming subject to the Canadian or US tax net. Um, if you asked me, you know, for a little bit more granular detail on, on the differences, I think, you know, Cayman, as I said, is, is recognized as the leading offshore funds jurisdiction. And, and accordingly, it charges a little bit of a premium in terms of the regulatory fees and, and some of the additional costs that, that you have to, to pay to maintain a Cayman fund. BVI is, is certainly a little more cost effective on that front. Interesting. Yeah, I guess from its being a British overseas territory, there's strong, strong ties there. And uh, But they have their own law, right? Do they, or do they, they use British law? Yeah, so, so both of them have um, what I'd call that Commonwealth background, mm -hmm. the, the common law. Um, background from both being British overseas territories, uh, they they do have their own legal systems, um, and and you know, the 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 court they have their own courts in both Cayman and BVI. Although the court of they both have the same court of appeal, oh. um, but but that court of appeal interprets Cayman or BVI law. Yeah, so. for for Jennifer uh, mentioned um, the EU and such, and you guys are active in quite a few jurisdictions and. And I was in Dublin last time, and I heard that you guys have like a some sort of like a platform or a passporting or some sort of system so that fund managers can get their um, their funds into Europe, maybe a bit easier. I don't know out of, out of the Dublin or Luxembourg offices. Do you uh, do you have much insight into that? Yes, that's a that's a major business line for 
Karn so that we offer the management companies and investment managers can use our management companies and partner with us. They would handle the investment management piece of the portfolio. And then mm. Karn offers the services for risk oversight, for AML compliance, for governance to meet all of the various regulatory obligations. And Karn has built out a very robust technology solution for that called Core and where that you know, takes in all of the source information and presents the risk reporting in a way that's easy for the directors to review in their board packs. And so that that is probably the single biggest business line for the current group is the kind of fund management in those European jurisdictions. Wow, that's a nice package. So do they, um, where would these funds be domiciled? Would they in Cayman or would they have to be in an EU jurisdiction? So typically they're EU jurisdictions. So our three major jurisdictions are the Channel Islands, the Irish funds, as well as Luxembourg funds. And those are the three main jurisdictions where people would establish and then offer mm. into the rest of Europe from them. Oh yeah, right, the Channel Islands too, yeah. And, and I'll go to Jennifer on this too, but for, for Lewis, like when you're setting up these funds and you're, uh, there has to be offshore directors, um, do the fund managers choose those directors? Do you choose them? Do they, are there's like a tribunal or something? Like how do they figure out who's going to be the Jennifer and her peers on the, uh, on yeah. the fund? Well, that's a great question. I mean, from, from a purely Cayman and BVI legal perspective, there's, there's actually no requirement to have Cayman or BVI based directors mm. of, of those types of funds. And so, there's, there's usually, in my experience, and um, I'd love to hear what Jennifer has to say on this as well, but in my experience, there's two kind of drivers um, to appoint Cayman-based independent directors. Um, the first one is where, for tax structuring reasons onshore, for example, in Canada, mm. um, it, you need to have a, a majority of the mind and management of the offshore fund outside of Canada to make sure that the CRA doesn't start um, viewing that fund as, as being domiciled in, in Canada and taxable in Canada. So having independent directors based in Cayman um, to ensure that the CRA agrees that the, the fund is outside of Canada is, is important. That's one reason. The other reason, I think, is where you've got larger institutional investors, they may not feel comfortable investing in a fund which has both of the managers' principals as the two directors of the mm. fund. They, they want a little bit of independent oversight, and um, that, that's where um, Jennifer and her colleagues would, would come into play in, in that situation. Um, usually I see the manager selecting the, the, um, the directors, but I think in some circumstances where an institutional uh, player has, has a good relationship with a, a, a Cayman-based director, they, they may sometimes push for them to be appointed. You're definitely mm. right, Lewis, that the impetus is, I would say, primarily driven by institutional investors. And that's kind of, it very quickly has become best practice from a governance perspective to have independent directors. So I, I think it's very rare nowadays that you would see any type of AUM invested into a fund where the board of directors is not a majority independent and that's just to kind of give that oversight mm -hmm. and and have someone kind of representing the investors on the inside and a party to the details and making sure that their best interests are being considered when decisions are being made where that director is based is 
agreed with what you say as well. It's not set out anywhere that it has to be in the Cayman Islands. I think you find that for the most part, either both or at least one of the directors do tend to be based in the Cayman Islands. There are a few reasons for that. One, the Cayman Islands does have kind of a broad industry here, and there's a lot of senior people with the depth of experience. So it's usual for a person like myself to come out of a decade of fund administration at a fairly senior level and then become an independent director. And that's really where the biggest pool of senior industry experienced directors sit. And then in addition to that, there's also really an advantage that when you're in the local community, when you're part of the local associations, when you're part of the consultation period for all of the various pieces of legislation and regulation, that that inside track into the local knowledge is really helpful on the board. And so we're often able to not just let investment managers know about different regulations that are coming up, but we're able to provide a lot of color, both about how it came about, what it's trying to achieve, and kind of what our peers are seeing in the industry. And I know a lot of my managers find that part of it very interesting and useful because any piece of regulation is always easier to implement if you kind of have the backstory to it and, and some knowledge on how others are attacking it. So so that I think is where, um, where having us has come about. In terms of your question about the appointment, the, the directors are, um, we are appointed through the launch of the fund initially or by the existing board of directors with the fund launched with just an internal director in order to get the formation going. Um, so what typically happens is the investment manager does uh, information gathering exercise and asks people for referrals as who would be kind of a, a good candidates to talk to. And they, they do a bit of an interview process to identify the directors that they want to work with. And as Lewis said, one piece of that can often be if they have a large seed investor or they have a new investor who's coming in and, and they feel strongly that there are a list of directors that that investor feels represents investors well and that through their operational due diligence practice that they like their approach to governance and they'll ask them to include a number of their directors in that slate that they look at. I, that's often how I get to meet the investment managers because you, you'd need kind of an introduction into them typically. And so mm -hmm. then usually the investment manager will, um, you know, talk to everybody and then decide who they think they want their skill set that they have a good rapport with and that their background fits well what they want for the board. And that's typically how the board is initially put together. Cool. I got a ton of questions here. Wow. Okay. So, so you have your CA, CPA of Canada, US CPA. Uh, most people would you say this is like part part A uh, have a have an audit background or or accounting background. Um, what and then what type of specialization do they have with directors? Like they do certain types of funds, or is it mostly everyone's a generalist and a fund is a fund and it has more to do with the the regulatory side? Um, I will stop there. And I got a couple more too. No problem. So I think for the most part in Cayman, people fall into two buckets. Either people have an accounting designation and that type of 
audit, fund administration, operational background, or there are people who have a legal background and those buckets are not equally sized. So there are probably more accountants that act as director than there are lawyers, just because mm -hmm. in general, there are more accountants here in the, in the Cayman Islands than, than lawyers who leave practice to become independent directors. I think mm -hmm. both, both skill sets fit well and complement each other on the board. So um, we play well together. You know, it's interesting when I went into directorships, I wondered whether you would end up kind of being a, a specialist in a certain strategy like credit or private equity. But in actual fact, I think most people have a diversified portfolio of, of strategies for a couple of reasons. One, it's, you don't want to not be in touch with the various strategies and institutions out there, but also more importantly, having a diversified book of clients means that when one particular strategy is under pressure and there are certain issues around it, it doesn't, oh, yeah. it doesn't cause an escalation of every client in your book. And so then almost exponentially, mm. you're having to fight fires and having a, a diversified book allows that, you know, when credit funds were struggling, then at least your long short equity book was ticking along and there wasn't that many issues and then vice versa. So it allows you to kind of smooth the crises other than obviously the financial crisis of 2008, which affected everybody and the COVID-19 crisis of 2020, right. which is also affecting everybody. Yeah. So uh, for both of you, let me start with Jennifer because you're kind of right there is uh, what, what powers do directors have? Can they tell management what to do or and I guess the fund pays them and they report to the investors and then like uh and then part two of that is can they be fired and or just quit and what happens if that happens is that like the worst case like the nuclear scenario for uh for offshore directors it seems like it's a pretty pretty uh stead sort of business where you know whoa someone quit that must be the the hugest thing in the world is that is that the case yeah, you, you, you kind of hit the nail on the head. In, in reality, we have all the power in the structure. Once the board is appointed, then we appoint the service providers and the investment manager oh. is one of those service providers. So while they pick us initially in order to be introduced, we then really, we sign their investment management agreement and are the people who would be required to terminate their investment management agreement as well. But you, you actually very rarely see that happen because investors have done their due diligence mm -hmm. on the investment manager and that's who they want to be managing their money. But when you hear of a funding crisis or where perhaps there's a fraud, that's how it gets unwound is the board then terminates the investment manager. And over time, you do sometimes see boards change. It's fairly uncommon. Um, you, you will see over time boards evolve. You know, perhaps there's a fund starts out with, you know, a certain type of director that then, then they would have a bigger institutional investor join and they say, look, you know, we would like to see a slightly different composition on your board, whether it's diversity, whether it's senior seniority in the industry, whether it's experience. And so they might appeal to the investment manager to, you know, can you talk to your board about potentially shifting its composition I'm trying That's, to think of that right seems word. fairly glacial <laughs> yeah like that's like a mutually agreeable situation where you know investment manager will reach out to the board say we're getting this type of request and the board tends to be quite collegiate and you know in that situation typically what happens when they're going to make a change is then that particular director who is going to come off the board would just resign as and then 
the new director would be appointed. So the, the resignations and the appointments happen at the board level. And if it was more contentious and there was an issue where either a director was acting inappropriately or whether they you know, wouldn't resign when they were asked or there was some sort of issue where we felt that that director is not mm. representing the investor's best interest, the existing board would then vote and they could be removed that way, I believe. But Lewis is probably much better positioned to talk about the logistics of how that happens because we would actually refer back to the formation documents of the fund and and refer to Cayman Council to guide us through that process as a board. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I agree, Jennifer. It's it's very rare to have that circumstance. But, you know, in addition to the board itself having the, the power to appoint directors, the shareholders do also have the right to remove and appoint uh, directors. And it depends on how you've cut the, the share rights in the fund document um, regarding the removal and appointment of directors to as to whether it's easy or not to use that kind of nuclear option. Um, sometimes we see uh, voting management shares that are held by uh, the, the investment manager, for example. And, and in that case, it's those voting management shares that do have the right to remove and appoint the directors. In other cases, uh, the investors themselves have the voting rights. So if there is uh, a real problem with one of the directors, the, the um, managers or the directors would have to round up, or the other directors would have to round up an appropriate number of votes from the investors to, to pass that removal resolution. So uh, it, it is very rare. I mean, I think for the most part, the manager and the directors and the other service providers are all aligned in, in what's best for the company. You do sometimes see some divergence of that in a, in a distress situation. And Jennifer, I'm, I'm sure you can talk about some of the, the experiences from, from 10 years ago, but uh, in those circumstances, the, the manager may have their own interests and the, the fund directors have their obligations uh, at a fiduciary level to look after, as Jennifer mentioned, the, the interests of the investors as a whole. And so sometimes there can be a little divergence there. That's definitely true. And the good managers, it often just takes kind of a strong board reminding them of the interests of the shareholders and kind of the best way forward. And they hopefully come on board and and work with you based on the guidance you're giving. But there are instances where boards just have to say, no, that's not what we should do. Or, you know, it's we need to wind up this product. It's not really feasible anymore. In those instances, a cohesive board is so helpful because the directors, if they come from a similar background and have a similar approach to governance, they, they tend to be aligned and standing together with the investment manager to kind of explain why it's important to take the decisions that are in the best interest of the shareholders. We'll stick with you, Jennifer. And how many directorships do you hold? And I think that's changed over the years. I think there was some something happening there with People had quite a few directorships and, uh, you know, things can slip through the cracks. But what what's happened since then uh, with regard to the number of directorships that each individual might have or each company to make sure that each each uh, client is serviced uh, well enough for the for the benefit of the investors? I think that's still an interesting question that gets tossed around in the industry. Some directors are not transparent, wouldn't want to you know, say it in a public forum, the number of relationships that they work with and others don't disclose the information. But mm. for myself and for Karn, we really 
have positioned our business to be aligned with the interests of institutional investors. And so we've always been really transparent about our capacity and how many appointments that we'll take. Actually, individual appointments is not really a meaningful number because you, if you have a, a number of oh. appointments of smaller funds, what's really more relevant is the relationships that you have because you tend to manage them kind of concurrently. And so at, in the Karn Group, we actually have a capacity cap of 30 relationships and the independent directors hmm. can choose below that number if they would like to close their book earlier based on their capacity. Our kind of ethos is that you should always have a manageable workload so that if the industry is in crisis, as you see now, and as you did in 2008, there has to be bandwidth within your book to be able to step mm -hmm. up and be engaged. And so that that's kind of the approach we take. And sometimes people who are on operating company boards or doing boards, in addition to their regular job, think that number, even though that's actually probably the lowest cap in the industry is high, but that's because mm. typically if you look at someone onshore in Canada, for example, my father's on the board of CRA, he he's, has a busy audit practice that he's running as an audit partner as well. Whereas the independent directors in the Cayman Islands, this is our only role. We have no tasks other than right. overseeing these companies, which makes it very manageable. You have no tasks, no other tasks, and you actually have no tax too. What about the funds? Like if they, because it's COVID and you have, uh, you know, real estate funds, you may not be sure what their marks are because of rents and everything and hedge funds and such. The public market stuff has been moving up and down. Like we saw like up and down 11% or something a few few weeks ago. And uh, I guess it's kind of eased off a bit. I think the VIX is only about 30 now versus 85 in the, in the, the throes of it. Um, and quite a few are gating and using other liquidity measures. So um, um, what are you seeing in your practice, Lewis? And then are you are there any opportunities? Are there any funds that are coming to you say, hey, now is the time to do a dislocation fund or something like that? Or is that still a bit early? Yeah, I, I don't know if you can hear, but I'm kind of frantically touching wood at the moment. <laughs> so far, I haven't been asked by any clients to advise on, on distressed situations. Um, and I think... A large part of that could be because investors have been through a pretty big financial crisis 10 mm. years ago and um, I think have learned a lot from, from, from that crisis and, and are perhaps acting in a, a calmer and more measured way. I mean, this is, this is obviously a little different. I mean, this is kind of a, a financial crisis that has resulted from a healthcare crisis rather than a, a self-generated financial crisis. Mm -hmm. and, and 2008, 2009, we had runs on banks because people just weren't sure of um, how stable those banks were and, and what their cash reserves were. Whereas I think now, you know, because of all of the, the legislation and regulation that came into play after the global financial crisis, people are a, a bit better equipped to deal with things. So from my perspective, thankfully, so far, I, I have not had to... Um, roll up my sleeves and, and get involved in distressed fund situations. Um, and to be honest, uh, there are a few opportunities that, that clients are able to pursue. I think um, the, the, the dip that happened at the end of last month encouraged quite a few institutional investors mm -hmm. who'd been following um, particular managers to, to actually commit and put some money in. So uh, I've got a closing tomorrow for a, a pretty large fund of one. Um, we're we're a, a well-known 
U.S. institutional investor is, is putting a, a, a good chunk of money in, into that manager's strategy. Um, earlier this month, I also closed another fund of one, uh, again, in the same situation where an institutional investor said, we've been following you for a while and, and we want to want to put money in um, into a fund of one uh, that, that you manage. So I think there have been some good opportunities in terms of fundraising. And then obviously we have certain clients who love volatility and, and um, <laughs> really uh, were bemoaning the fact that there wasn't any last year. Mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, 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 so there are a few people who, you know, have taken advantage of the volatility. I've got value investor clients who were saying there's, there's some absolute bargains around last month. So thankfully um, my clients so far have been um, coping quite well. Yeah, I definitely want to echo that, Lewis. There are a few, a number of my clients where it's interesting to see that this is their thesis playing out, that all along they've been saying where they had kind of mediocre return in 2019 and, you know, attributing it to the lack of volatility. It's been really interesting to see this period hit and that thesis play out and have some really tremendous results. Um, and so I think that's good for investors to see that when people's kind of predictions are, are coming true. Well, that's great. Thank you both. Um, that's been really great having you on and learning about the, the offshore markets and offshore funds and directors and uh, all these uh, kind of like uh, all these uh, exotic jurisdictions like uh, Luxembourg. <laughs> thanks. Thanks a lot. And uh, we hope to have you both on another podcast again sometime soon. Thanks very much, James. Thanks very much for having us.